Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present an encore presentation of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria. We are uh, finishing up the uh, third in a three-part series. Actually, ended up being a three-part series because we had so much information on a Herman Cohen, a, a Carmelite priest who has a very interesting background. We'll cover that briefly, although it is uh, available in the first two programs that we did in this series on Herman Cohen. And uh, tonight we're going to finish up with the events of his life and some of the more significant contributions he made to the church and also use him as a segue into our reflections on Lent. Uh, and in uh, that regard, Francis, uh, this was your topic. I applaud you on it. It was a great choice. It, it linked us to Lords and now to Lent. So we've got the L's on the end and Herman's life in the middle was, uh, it's been a good series. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. I, I thank you for that. And, you know, his, uh, subtitle, I think, should be Champion of the Eucharist. And I saw another one. Uh, it was a Japanese import book called Performer of the Grace of God. And it was about Herman Cohen. I thought, what a great title, performer, because, you know, he played the piano, was a virtuoso pianist, performer of the grace of God. Well, I'm going to ask you to give our audience just a quick snapshot, if maybe they're uh, just uh, tuning into this uh, third in the series of the programs so that we have some background uh, before we begin. But I'm going to invite you first to lead us in prayer. All right, this actually comes from a quote from Father Herman Cohen, one of his prayers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh, adorable Jesus, for me, whom you brought to the solitude of Carmel in order to speak to my heart, whom you allowed to abide in your presence, the order is the soul of happiness. I kiss the walls of my beloved cell, where nothing draws me away from Jesus, my only thought, and where I breathe the love of the divine sacrament. O oh, Jesus, how I should like to show others the happiness which you have granted me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I know, Francis, you're particularly... Um excited, I think, is a fair way to describe it, about this particular individual because he is so intimately linked with a big part of your life, and that's music. Music, yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about your musical background, by the way. I don't think that either of us have given a lot of biographical sketches, but I know this is an important part of your life. Uh, say a little bit about your background with music, and then we'll get back to uh, Father Cohen. Well, since I was little, I... <clears throat> played well, wait an a instrument. Yeah, you're still, you're still, <laughs> still little. little. <laughs> He's meaning short Sorry. in stature. <laughs> but um, I played the French horn, um, and I excelled at the French horn, and I studied with many famous people. Um, I know I studied with the St. Louis Symphony horn player and, and many uh, professors that were of renown, and I went through and got my bachelor's and my master's, and uh, I played in many symphony orchestras and operas and um, so I, I got a long tradition, and then I was in the military with the Air Force bands. And um, so I've had a, a long history with music. And I think what's important about the music in relation to this topic is that, you know, Herman Cohen was a, a child prodigy pianist. He, and he became a student of Franz Liszt, who we know is a very, very famous musician, composer of the Romantic period. And um, he 
was so good and he performed so widely, he understood the transcendental nature of music, how it can lift you out of yourself. And I think that is so important um, because I think this was a, a serious link for him to God. And so it's in the midst of his performing duties as a musician, uh, not just as a performer on the piano, but also as a conductor. Um, and also uh, he eventually was writing music, uh, composed actually a mass uh, that the Carmelites still sing. And, you know, he, um, I think when he went to that benediction service and he was the substitute choir director and he had that mystical experience, it was really um, profound for him. And, you know, that was a, a transitional point. And I think most people who are in the arts and even athletes can experience this sense of when something is, you know, so easy, uh, it's effortless, and there's such a beauty, and it's it it's such... Um, it takes you out of the sort of, uh, you know day-to-day experience. You use the word transcendental, and I know I, uh, most of our audience will appreciate you simply mean transcending yes, yes. Right, our normal sense experience of the world, right? Yes. And, and this it, is what the arts have the capacity to do. And it links with me to prayer as a practicing Carmelite. You know, um, to me, it is a musical sense of what contemplative prayer is. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think as we speak about him today, um, as we finish this series, uh, the importance of music in his life. You know, um, it, he was popular in this Romantic era, and the Romantic era was important for the cultural life, and there was more uh, institutions for music, for teaching, for performance and preservation of works, and more attention to melody and rhythm and, and romance, um, expressive, emotional elements, passionate, uh, impressionistic music, tone poems, program music. So musicians out there will, will understand these keywords, but it's more about color. And this is the period of the glorification of the artist. Beforehand, they um, gained their fame um, as, you know, uh, servants of the court. And now they're becoming on their own, and they're out there traveling across the world. And so Cohan was doing that along with his teacher, Franz Liszt, and then off on his own as well. And he also had his own studio of teaching. But, you know, there was a lot of Carmelites that used music as a way of conveying spiritual elements. Uh, for example, St. John the Cross, he talked about the silent music and the sounding silence that can be found in the spiritual canticle. And then we have St. Teresa of the Andes, this young, beautiful Carmelite uh, nun um, who loved guitar and piano and vocal music. And, of course, your very favorite, uh, Blessed Elizabeth of Trinity, who was also a very trained and highly talented, gifted pianist. Mm-hmm. Well, you bring out some interesting um, elements of his uh, youth that affected his later life. Talk a little bit about these experiences of human love early on in his life. Well, he he did. um, There was a equestrian lady that he fell in love with, and she was serious about him. But something turned in the midst of their relationship, and suddenly he felt the attraction um, more and more, and knew that he now was God's. And so he had he had broken off that relationship. But you know, he knew the limitations and the disappointments of human love. And he saw it with Franz Liszt, who who had one mistress and then another. Um, but 
yet uh, now he was turning his love to the only one that could really fully satisfy him, and that was to God. And he devotes the remainder of his life for this newfound love. And this fits right in with the passionate nature of the Romantic period. In fact, there is a Carmelite priest who um, wrote a little bit about Cohan and his love of music. Would you like to read uh, those Père quotes? Benoit Marie. Yes, uh, very Carmelite. well. <laughs> um, he um, w- Now, did he know Cohen? I don't know if he personally knew him <coughs> but he certainly or knew he wrote about him. him yeah. but, but these are quotes, two quotes by him about Cohen that I think really linked the music and this period of music well. Yeah, he sums up exactly what Francis is talking about, the significance of the artistic nature. And, of course, we're not saying you have to be artistic to be a Carmelite, but we are saying, I think, there is a um, an awareness, if you will, of the... Um, beauty beyond the limitations of our senses that art oftentimes can elevate us into. And and Father uh, ben, uh, Benoit Marie says, speaking of Cohen, the poet and the musician have but one heart and one soul. Indeed, it is hard to say which inspired the other. The melody is the poetry singing, the poetry, the melody speaking. And then he also says, inspired by love for the Eucharist, inspired also by love for music, for musical beauty, these two poles were perfectly fused. His is a true interpreter who effaces himself before the musical reality. I like that, effaces himself. A humble instrument who inspires people and so reaches with full freedom into the heart of of the public, so this kind of explains his passion and his zeal for souls that that will develop more and more as he grows in Carmel. But you know, it's interesting that uh, he had a uh, relationship with a Marie Pauline who wrote a lot of poetry, and he would put her poems to music, and sometimes he would, you know, change her words a little bit. Uh, but he said to her, he said, "Yesterday I read your poem only once. I seem to hear within me the music of the hymn." And one of these, I have to bring this connection because it's with Saint Therese. One of these in particular was called "A Little Flower at the Door of the Tabernacle." And Cohan partly composed the words as well as the music. And this is the one that greatly influenced the little flower, St. Therese of Lisieux, which she referred to in the story of the soul. Now, you, um, we passed over a little bit of the uh, material of his relationship with Franz Liszt last week. I know you wanted to bring that out, uh, most especially this gift um, that we're going to talk about. Um, Franz Liszt's own impact on Cohen in terms of his music, Liszt's music, and then we'll bring back, I think, the relationship between the two of them later yes. uh, in their life. But tell us a little bit about this early experience with uh, with Liszt. Well, Franz Liszt, of course, is more of a mentor <coughs> in, in more ways than one, not just music, but also morally. Uh, and as a sign of that, understanding of the responsibility of this moral character he was to help develop in um, Herman Cohen, he gave him the gift of a Bible. And, you know, at this time, uh, Herman Cohen is only age 14 or 15 years old. But on the inside of the Bible, he had inscribed, Blessed are the pure of heart. And, of course, that struck Herman. And he never forgot that. I'm sure um, this is one of God's calls early in his life. You know, so I, I like to bring that out. And then there was another moment um, where there was an organ concert. 
um, where Cohan felt a deep religious experience when Liszt was playing an improvisation where he's making up uh, a melody on the theme of the Dies Irae, which in Latin means Day of Wrath, which is the medieval Latin hymn describing the last judgment. I thought that was interesting. Okay, you're hearing a hymn on the last judgment, and it's touching you. So, you know, there's more there. Um, and this was from Mozart's Requiem. And he played it on the grand organ of the cathedral in St. Nicholas Cathedral in Freiburg. And Herman was struck to the quick. And if Liz could set a worldly example, especially in relationships, um, yet he could also unleash these forces that thrust one into the presence of the Almighty. Again, another sense of the transcending uh, experience. Cohen quoted, said, Liz played that great organ, that colossal harp of David, all of whose majestic notes convey some vague idea of your greatness, oh my God. You were there at the door of my heart, and I did not open to you. So in this sense, you know, Looking back, Cohen sees that the, the, that the Lord was knocking at, at his heart in these two instances. And um, now he's being grateful because now he's starting to see. And you know how often in our own lives, uh, when we look back, we're just like, oh, yeah, if I had just responded, if I just realized. Uh, but there are things in our lives that are, are tugging at our heartstrings to help us come close to God. Well, and we also want to touch just briefly, I think, Francis, on the significance of the name that he chose. We we talked about that last week, but we didn't really give the particulars of his uh, religious name. Well, you know, as he was leaving the world and going to join Carmel, um, he took on the name Augustine Mary of the Blessed Sacrament. And that's important because we know St. Augustine had a great conversion from a worldly life to a very spiritual life. And and so does Cohen. And, um, but Cohen doesn't know that's coming, but he knows that he had a great conversion moment. And it, he was also baptized on the feast of St. Augustine, who he took as his patron, which I think was very interesting. And then he attributed the Blessed Mother, the Virgin Mary, as the one who brought this conversion to him. And then later on, when he is asked to go found Carmelite friaries in England by Pope Pius IX, he is sent in the spirit of St. Augustine. So St. Augustine is really coming to the fore in Cohen's life. Now, you also talked a little bit about uh, some of his early uh, behavior. Of course, this has to be rectified and addressed uh, later in life and uh, some of his bad habits that he carried. We talked about his childhood and how he was sort of a self-centered person. Of course, that's not unique if you're fiery. particularly gifted in some respect. But. Stubborn, fiery temperament, <clears throat> spoiled rotten. <laughs> gifted, though, you know, so the center of attention was on him. But, you know, he did have some emotional baggage. You had asked me about this, and so I had looked for it. You know, here we know him as this, you know, um, child prodigy and becoming a, a dilettante, women feigning, just hearing him play. He's sort of like the rock star of his day. And um, he was getting attention on and off stage. And, and, of course, like many famous people on stage, they get very confused by the world and very lost. And so he had many bad habits to overcome. And as he joins Carmel, you know, he's starting to deal with, with these things. He had a very malicious wit. Um, a tendency to backbite and gossip. He was addicted to gambling, and he, although he made lots of money, he lost lots of money because of his gambling habit. He smoked and he took snuff 
and he loved coffee. And I, I had to bring that out because so many people like to give up coffee for Lent. But, you know, uh, I think this is important for us to realize that he wasn't perfect. He's human. And he's going to see more and more how he needs to um, practice the virtues, how he needs to overcome these. But he, he knows that God is his strength. And so here he is going into Carmel. And what does he face? What does he get when he gets to Carmel? Are you talking about the cell, the, uh, the, the bare feet, yeah. you know? He really yeah. enters the desert, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but uh, he enters the desert experience. He's introduced, as he says himself in a letter written to his family, he's introduced to the uh, disciplines of solitude, silence, seclusion, a hidden life, and self-denial. Yes, aren't those good litten practices for us? I think you should say those again. Solitude, silence seclusion, the hidden life, and self-denial. Now, no doubt, Francis, our listeners are probably sitting there thinking, well, that's great for somebody who's entered the religious life. Those are uh, readily available, if you will, although I suspect that many in religious life might tell us that's not true. But uh, nonetheless, we in the world are supposed to seek out these uh, treasures as well. We have to find solitude in our life. We have to practice silence. Um, Very often we have to um, make those uh, times for seclusion and hiding ourselves away from the world and certainly self-denial. And you've said a couple of times, and I know we want to focus on the upcoming <clears throat> entry into the desert of Lent and our need to begin to practice uh, denial of our wants and desires so that we bring them under control. This is part of the, the Lenten I- experience, and certainly this is what uh, hit uh, Herman um, front head on when he entered the order. Yeah, in fact, he says, these are my chosen lot. He said, I am a novice with the order, the most blessed mother of God of Mount Carmel, famous in history for its strict rule, penitential rigor and love of God. My wish is that you will experience the same peace and joy that have been my constant companions for the last two years. And especially since I devoted myself entirely to God, he has given me back a a thousand times more than I could possibly give him. He has poured his treasury of graces over my soul. So the challenge is out there um, to overcome our um, attachments to the world. But it's all good because when we do that, we can enter into an intimacy with the Lord, into the interior cell of our heart where we can pray and not pray just for favors, but pray to be loving, pray to imitate the Lord, pray to take on his mind and his heart. Now, when he was um, ordained a deacon, of course, en route to um, his uh, receiving um, his priestly ordination, he writes... Um, um, these, uh, I, I think, revealing words. Jesus has raised me to the rank of deacon, he says. When I think about this, I shake with emotion. On the Feast of the Epiphany during evening devotions, I carried him for the first time in my unworthy hands. How I trembled when I placed the Lord of the universe upon the altar, O God of love. This is beginning to sort of reveal his appreciation. We went through, and I think the <clears throat> second program in this series his um, uh, appreciation and the experience he had of the Eucharist um, and how really it's what brought about his conversion. And here we begin to see, now that he's been raised uh, uh, to um, uh, the diaconate, we begin to see his 
gaining appreciation and deepening his understanding for the significance of the Eucharist. And of course, beforehand, he'd already start started founding the nocturnal. Um, Eucharistic adoration. adoration. Right. So, and I think it's interesting to note that when he did uh, go to Carmel and go to his novitiate, his studies were interrupted because his superiors instructed him to return to musical composition. So they made him go back to his music, and from this period came a magnificent collection of songs in honor of the Blessed Sacrament. And um, I, I think there's some masses, too. But anyway, he does go on to study theology, and, and actually he does all of this very quickly. It's only in four years' time he has completed all of his training and become a deacon and then ordained to a priest. Um, he was actually ordained on Holy Saturday, April 19th of eight. 1851, and he was only 29. So only four years earlier is when he experienced that mystical grace during that benediction when he was the substitute choir directly. So this is very fast-paced, unusual in a, the normal um, situation in the church. But uh, yes, his love for the Eucharist continues to just grow and grow and grow. And after his uh, priestly ordination, he said, I still haven't recovered from the experience, nor do I wish to. Let love build up in this poor soul of mine that is so incapable of responding to the favors with which it has been showered so lavishly. That makes me think of St. Teresa of Avila, who, who always complained when God graced her with things, because she's like, you know, I would rather have the suffering than these graces, because I'm so not worthy, you know. So his humility is very strong already. And then, of course, he attributes it all to Jesus and Mary. He says, it was Jesus and Mary that drew me to themselves. Mary brought me to Jesus, and Jesus gave me Mary. She gave me the Eucharist, and the Eucharist stole my heart, and so ravished me that I wished to live for Jesus and Mary alone. That I, that is why I offered myself to Jesus in a Marian order. That is why I became Mary's monk and Christ's priest. Oh yes, I love Jesus. I love the Eucharist. Let this sound forth. Let it echo from the choirs over hill and dale. Repeat after me. I love the Eucharist. Jesus is with me. He came to me this morning. He offered himself to me. I have him. I hold him. I worship him. He became flesh in my hands. Oh, ineffable happiness. He's my Emmanuel, my love, my Eucharist. You know, you, you make a note here about his now putting his hand to the plow. We went through that series of Father Sinisons where uh, the first phase is our acceptance of everything in our life as being God's will. That second phase where we have to begin to put our hand to the plow, Lent being an ideal time to do that. Uh, but the um, the importance of um, Father Cohen's experience is he was captivated by the Eucharist, but he had to take the action to go back to the Eucharist, and he did continuously within days after his first experience. And of course, he, as you mentioned, uh, began a nocturnal adoration, nighttime adoration, and spent hours uh, before the uh, Eucharist, before his uh, entry into uh, priestly studies and eventually priestly ordination. Right. 
And once he's ordained, he makes a vow to promote the Eucharist in all his sermons. And in fact, uh, you know, he preached to thousands all over Europe. Everywhere he once went as a famous concert pianist, he now went as a famous preacher. And of course, because he converted and left this famous world stage, he was more of a, a spectacle to be um, observed. And so, uh, lo and behold, he caught a lot of souls this way. And one of his sermons, I think, is particularly powerful about the Eucharist. And it was his first one um, in Paris. And he says, um, I was hoping that maybe Mark... Yeah, I have traveled throughout the world. I have loved the world. I have learned one thing about the world. You don't find happiness there. And you, brethren... Have you found it? Can you say you are happy? Do you do you want anything? I think this is being do spoken to all of anything. us. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you not want anything? Uh, we might add the words anything else. And th- this is clearly a message that's being delivered for all of us. And, and so appropriate for today. <laughs> Happiness. Where are you? He says. Tell me. Where are you hidden? And I will search for you. Hold you and possess you. I have searched for happiness. So um, Herman Cohen knew what it was like to seek happiness in the world and in the experiences of the world. He was certainly gifted in his ability to make that search. We're going to pick up on his uh, sermon uh, when we come back from the break. A reminder that you are listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back.
listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you're currently listening to is a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria. You know, we've been talking for the last couple weeks now, Francis, this being the third, about Herman Cohen. Uh, I have no doubt we have a lot of uh, listeners in the audience who are both fans of music, some of whom may even be familiar with uh, Herman Cohen. Um, as a Carmelite, but maybe more especially as a musician, as a performer. Uh, certainly we have many who are familiar with Franz Liszt oh, yes. in the Romantic period. Um, and maybe have a, a, an observation on the significance, as you raised early in our conversation today, the significance of music in the spiritual journey, the significance of art in the spiritual journey, and how it has the capacity to raise our souls um, in, in ways that uh, the spoken word or, or the written word oftentimes can't. Well, Francis, before we broke, we were reading from one of his uh, sermons. I don't know that I uh, gave you enough time to sort of set the backdrop for this. I'll finish reading it, but just okay. uh, reset us on exactly where this sermon um, is drawn from. Well, he's <coughs> he's having, um, this is his first time to preach in the Church of St. Sulpice. Sulpice. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You're the Frenchman. Mm. <laughs> in Paris in 1854, and it's his first public appearance there since his conversion. So the people who are there, many of them are musicians and musician fans. <laughs> um, but so this, this is an, an opportunity to reach them in their worldliness. And he's telling them, I know all about happiness. I know all about the joys that this world can offer, and they haven't given me happiness. And he says, uh, in so many words, happiness, where are you to be found? He goes on then in his own words, I have sought it in the elegant life of salons, in the giddy pleasure of balls and banquets. I've sought it through the accumulation of money, in the excitement of gambling, in the hazards of adventure, and in trying to satisfy my burning ambitions. I've looked for it in the renown of the artist, in the friendship of famous people, and in all the pleasures of sense and spirit. Finally, I have looked for it in the fidelity of a friend, that incessant dream of every heart, a possible reference here to Franz Liszt himself. This happiness, dear God, was there anywhere I failed to seek it. W- was there anywhere I failed to seek it. How can one explain this mystery to oneself? For human beings are made for happiness. The mystery is that most people don't know in what happiness consists. They look for it where it does not exist. And he goes on. He says, yes, I am so happy that I come to offer it to you. So now he's going to share what he's learned. I come to entreat you to share with me this overflowing happiness. But you object. We don't believe in Jesus Christ. I, too, did not believe. And that is precisely why I was unhappy. I I think that's important. That's precisely why I wasn't happy. Faith shows us happiness in God and in Jesus Christ, his son. It is a mystery which pride cannot grasp. But to find Jesus Christ, one must must watch and pray. So pray and ask, and you will receive this intoxicating wine of immortality which flows from the winepress of prayer. Prayer imparts faith sheds light through prayer, which, united to faith, imparts peace, love, wisdom, light, freedom, all of which are contained in Jesus Christ. So there's the challenge. Pray, and you will learn this happiness of the Lord. 
Well, and uh, we talked just briefly again last uh, time, Francis, that we had a conversation on uh, Herman Cohen about the desert houses and the uh, practice within the Carmelite community to occasionally draw the friars out into the desert for a desert experience of more intense prayer, more intense uh, living, living with an intentionality towards uh, union with God. And, of course, he had the opportunity to uh, live at uh, a desert house that was not far from Lourdes. This is where it's we discussed in previous programs. In fact, he founded it. He, he founded bought the it. ground, right. he staked it out, and, and you could oversee where the Lourdes um, uh, shrine was. Um, and this was in 1857, so a year before the, the uh, Lourdes apparitions occurred is when he's up there on the Pyrenees Mountains. Beautiful uh, location, yeah. I understand. In fact, I had a chance to look it up online. You can still visit it, and it's a beautiful site. You can go there for retreats and so forth. Uh, so something worth looking into. But his desert experiences, uh, of which he had a few throughout his life, were very important to him. And it reminds me again that we are entering the season of Lent and the importance uh, of our creating some sort of a desert experience for ourselves, Self-denial, again, silence, solitude, seclusion uh, that uh, Father Herman talked about. And prayer. And go, prayer. Go and pray, just like Jesus <clears throat> did. He went off to the top of the mountains or into the gardens in solitude to pray. Well, and we've got to find that own uh, uh, our own desert experience, if you will, uh, through the Lenten season. We've got to find ways to create. You know, we talk about uh, almost uh, somewhat uh, as though when we were children, we, we'll pick something and we'll deny ourselves a sweet or a treat or a coffee, as you joked at the beginning of the program, or uh, maybe we'll uh, you know do something more rigorous and we'll say, well, I'm going to do the Stations of the Cross every day, or I'm going to make sure to attend Mass every day if you're not a daily communicant. Uh, some practice. Um, I think what Herman Cohen, if he were able to speak to us today, and of course through his own words he can, uh, might counsel us is you've really got to create a desert experience in the interior. You've got to get to a place where you can seek God in that silence and solitude that is already within you. It's not about just um, you know, sort of denying ourselves something or even taking on some additional penitential practice, but it is seeking out the Lord. All of these things that we talk about in the form of practice are really only designed to deepen our experience of the living God who we know is living within us. And we've got to enter that desert experience if we want to find him, because we won't find him in the noise of the city. And I think so many people are still looking for God out there somewhere, that he's far away, distant. But we know that our Carmelite saints over and over have tell us, no, he dwells within us. It's scriptural. He is within us, and he wants us to be one with him and the Father. Well, and there's another uh, great blessing that uh, Father Cohen gave to the church, and that is this uh, founding of the Confraternity of Thanksgiving. Now, we'll talk about the um, ratification of this by Pius IX, but uh, I want to first just lay the groundwork for uh, the confraternity itself. And Francis, can you tell us a little bit about the three degrees of thanksgiving that Herman Cohen talked about? Well, the first degree of thanksgiving would be that of the heart. We must stamp on our heart the memory of the great mercies the Lord has shown us, a remembrance which will monitor our feelings and remove from us any temptation to ingratitude. And I can't help but think of uh, Therese's book, The Story of the Soul, where in the introduction she says this is a story about the mercies of God. <laughs> the second degree leads us to praise and glorify God for the good things we've received. 
Um, the holy man Job blesses God in prosperity and in adversity. And we also find Tobit does not murmur against God when he becomes blind, but remains faithful to him, giving him thanks all the days of our life. So we need to praise and thank and glorify God in everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you know, this reminds me, we talked about it earlier, of Father Stinnison, the three-part series we did with his uh, book about... um, our needing to accept everything that is in our life, not just accepting it, but acknowledging that it is a blessing from God. Even the most difficult trials that we endure, uh, we need to learn to thank the Lord for those. And especially as we, again, entered this Lenten season, we're going to find that there will be difficulties and trials and struggles. They are blessings to us, and we need to, in the context of, of, of Father Cohen, give thanks for those. And, you know, he did share an insight about, um, he said, isn't it because Adam neglected to thank God for the gift of his glorious creation and the many riches of body and mind with which he was endowed that God withdrew his hand from him and allowed him to fall into sin? I thought, well, that's an interesting insight. There was no sign of Thanksgiving in the, that story there. So um, maybe that would be a good Lenten practice for us to take up, too. Um, of course, adoration. But, but to, when we go to adoration, to be thanking God for all of these gifts. And, you know, the hardest thing to thank God for are the trials. Even though we're told, oh, this is for your good, this is, uh, this is teaching you to love, this is teaching you patience, it's teaching you a humility, a great one, right? Um, really being able to, in, in sincerity, thank the Lord for the, even the trials that he gives us, because he also gives us the grace to overcome those trials. And, of course, the third degree... Um, of the three, this is the final one, he says, but it is by means of the divine Eucharist and by it alone that we can fulfill our debt of gratitude to God in a fitting manner. Here is the third and highest level of thanksgiving. So, you know, it's us offering Jesus to the Father. You know, what better gift than that? Um, oh, my God, when I offer you this host of praise and love, you make us hear again this fatherly voice from the highest heaven, which descended on Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the third, the highest degree of thanksgiving, which consists in adding to the gratitude of heart and tongue, that of hand and arms, giving back something more than one has received. Because, you know, to give back merely what one has received is to not give anything. It is in the Holy Eucharist that we find a surplus, something freely given of which St. Thomas speaks. That is why the Holy Eucharist is the only thanksgiving offering worthy of God. Just as ingratitude has its source in forgetfulness of God, so gratitude is based on the memory of his goodness. So and, you know, we've heard it so often, this attitude of gratitude. It's sort yes. of a, uh, a playful little expression, but at the end of the day, if we are not people who are constantly aware of God's blessings to us and thanking him for it, then we come we become people, as you just read, of ingratitude where we always focus on what God hasn't done, or at least what we perceive he hasn't done for us. Uh, and that determines in many ways how we approach God, how we deal with God, how we communicate with God, and likely how we end up then communicating and interacting with one another. And isn't this a beautiful thing to do at Lent? Go to Mass to offer thanksgiving, because human thanksgiving is not enough. So God gives us this opportunity to offer him his son. 
done through the divine Eucharist. It's a divine act of thanksgiving. It's infinite and inexhaustible, and that's what's suitable to give to God. You know, it's really an interesting twist, Francis, if you will, that Father Cohen's offering us here on the Lenten reflection as we link this to Lent. Uh, So often we think of the penitential aspects of Lent, the desert experience. We've talked about this uh, even here today. Um, The dryness that we can expect to experience, the uh, sense of loss over what it is that we may choose to give up or the sacrifice over some act, some penitential act we may engage in. Uh, But we also have to think about uh, the blessing and and the grace and the mercy uh, and and so many uh, ways in which uh, God has... uh, has provided for and taken care of us. And Lent might instead be that experience, the realization that, um, yes, uh, I, I can deny myself, I can engage in these penitential acts only so that I acknowledge what an overwhelming um, you know, gift of blessings the Lord has provided in, in, in our lives. And I think he summed it up well that he said, think of blessed Henry Suso who felt himself to be the conductor of a choir, directing the song of all creation to the Lord. What a holy person! But it seems to me that it was not he who was conducting the concert. The true conductor was the sacred heart of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. It is from him that we must take the pitch, from his divine heart, which beats the measure of our gratitude, whose adoration directs and leads our voices and our hearts in the songs of praise, which we owe the Most High through Christ our Lord. Now, this uh, organization, the Confraternity of Thanksgiving, I think still active today. And it was actually it was raised to an arch confraternity Mm -hmm. so that it could be uh, uh, spread throughout France. And that was done by Pope Pius IX, who encouraged him um, to do this. So our Father Cohen is calling us not only to be a penitential people, not only to be a Eucharistic people, but also to be a people of thanksgiving. And uh, I I think it's an important uh, addition, if you will, to the gifts that he's uh, um, provided to the church that he calls us to thanksgiving. Of course, in his own life, uh, there were so many reasons for thanksgiving, not only his worldly accomplishments and and, uh, those things that... uh, that set him apart from so many in the field of music and art. Uh, But then later, after his conversion, how significant those gifts became in a way that he could use to contribute to the church. You mentioned uh, how he stood as a figure in the Paris uh, Cathedral um, as somebody who they saw as a worldly figure who now had come to the realization that there was really nothing in the world that was going to satisfy his greatest need, and what a powerful message then he could communicate to those people who were still seeking. Yeah, what a witness and a testimony. So, you know, and and Father Cohen has much to say um, on the Eucharist and on prayer and on faith, um, but since we're very limited in our time, I think we want to get to uh, the end, because uh, he has a very profound ending. Um, in 19 or 1862, um, he and Franz Liszt both happened to be in Rome. And by this time, which is very interesting, Franz Liszt had become a cleric, being in the minor orders and a Franciscan tertiary. 
And so uh, that's interesting that that uh, came about. I'm sure there's a, a nice story there. So so a third order, Franz Liszt had joined the third order, secular order, if you will, uh, of the Franciscans in this right. case, and was very active <clears throat> in that. And and I don't know much about Liszt's later life. Maybe you do, but uh, I assume that he had uh, gone through some a deepening of his own conversion and experience of Christ. Yes. And, you know, here they, they spent three weeks together, and they played music together. Can you Imagine both of them on piano doing double <laughs> piano concertos, <laughs> whatever. And, and they were walking in the Colosseum together. And um, they were there on the occasion of a large gathering called by Pius IX for the canonization of a number of the Japanese martyrs. And here, Liszt is receiving communion from Herman's hands, and they're dining together. Um, and they even have the piano that Herman played on. And there was one moment where they talked about seeing them walking together in the Colosseum, walking side by side in a solemn way of the cross ceremony. Both bore heavy burdens in their hearts as they prayed together. What a parting picture for the two of them. And then, of course, Cohen is sent to England. Uh, England has been without Carmelites for over 300 years now since the schism of Henry VIII. And uh, Cohan has been invited by the Cardinal to go there um, in the spirit of St. Augustine. Um, and Pope Pius says this to support that. I bless you, my son, and I'm sending you to England as in the 7th century one of my predecessors blessed and sent the monk Augustine, the first apostle of that country. And so he goes, and he actually becomes the first prior of the Carmelite Priory in Kingsington, London, and began a musical tradition there, composed of mass and thanksgiving for his conversion to Christ, which is still sung from time to time in the Priory Church by that famous Carmelite choir there. And then... um, he, um, this is where the Lord's uh, miracle and healing of his eyes happen. And he then meets one of our other Carmelites, um, the Saint Raphael Kalinowski, who at that time was known as Joseph Kalinowski and who had not joined the Carmelite order yet. But those two met up because of the music. And uh, Raphael Kalinowski was in Paris as a tutor for uh, the uh famous prince, Augustus, who was the son of Prince Ladislas Sartorisky. I'm butchering that name. But anyway, <laughs> his, his tutored person, Augustus, becomes a blessed from the Salesian order. But Joseph Kolonowski was impressed not just by the music, but more by the spirituality of Herman Cohen. And it ends up that he um, is the one who did the first translation of the story of soul into Polish. And he's also the one who wrote the biography of Herman Cohen, which I think was very interesting. So anybody in Poland that wants to translate that into English, I would love to read it. <laughs> now, we did, I think, uh, yes, series. we had uh, Deacon Baldwin here, and we did a series on... Uh, St. Raphael um, Kalinowski. Kalinowski, yes. right. Well, now we go into the war, 1870, near the end of his life. Franco-Prussian. Yes, war, yeah. and... Um, Herman is torn between the two because he loves France, his adopted home, but he's German by birth, and he's a Jew, and so he's being chased around. He's made a fugitive. Uh, he flees to Switzerland, uh, where he ministers to exiles from both France and Germany. And then he hears about French prisoners who are languishing in, in a prison a few miles outside of Berlin. And he was given permission to take this position since he was German. He was allowed to do that. Uh, and so he moves to Spandau, 
Um, and this was a garrison town uh, with many, many barracks. And um, he there he assists over 5,300 prisoners of war, um, some of them ill with typhus and dysentery. Um, and he offers mass for them, and he administers last rites and um, has um, a great deal to do with many of their conversion. And he's prophetic about his own uh, life, his uh, impending death. Uh, he says, soon after arriving in Berlin, Berlin will be my grave. So he seemed to either have had uh, maybe a mystical experience, prophetic insight, uh, or perhaps was just very uh, aware of the difficulty of his circumstances. But he seems to understand that this will be his last uh, performance, if you will. Yes, and he served it heroically. Uh, it was heroic <laughs> ending in serving his neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor sealed the deal here. He was actually... Uh, giving the anointing of an extreme unction uh, to two of the victims of um, smallpox. And the spatula, which they usually use to anoint them with the holy oil, was missing because you're not supposed to use your hands. Um, but he couldn't find it, so he's not going to hesitate to anoint them. So he goes ahead and he anoints them, but he had a scratch on his finger, and he uh, actually contracts the smallpox, and he does die of the smallpox. But, uh, you know, he had a peaceful death. He had sung the Te Deum, the Save Regina, and his last words were like John of the Cross. He said, now, oh, my God, place my soul into your hands. And he dies on the 20th of January in 1871, where he was then buried in the Carmelite Church of St. Hedwig in Berlin and then uh, was reburied in another cemetery due to the war. Um, and then 2008, his remains were transferred to the Priory um, in Le Brousset, um, where he had entered the Carmelite order. Well, in one of his biographers, a, a Charles Sylvan, uh, in his biography gives his own uh, nuanced assessment of the life of Herman Cohen, which we'll read here just briefly. Uh, his conversion, he says, was nothing less than a transformation, and yet it is evident that the man was subdued, not dead. Nature at times claimed its rights, and the impetuosity of an ardent character was frequently aroused. <laughs> the memory of past pleasures and applause still recurred to his imagination, but we have seen how invariably he struggled against these temptations and how we went on from victory to victory ever advancing with the giant strides in the way of the Christian perfection and afterwards in the perfection of monastic life. His faith overcame all obstacles, overthrew every impediment, and trampled on false shame. The hope of future blessedness gave him courage to value at their true worth all worldly honors, pleasures, and possessions, and he left them all so that he might here below have for his own Jesus, whose love filled his soul. And so this heroic life um, led um, to his cause for canonization to be introduced. So they're working on that now. So we'll be praying our closing prayer, uh, praying for his beatification. Well, and I just want to make a few programming notes before we do close in prayer. Uh, next week, uh, assuming good weather, Francis, it's been a little... Yeah. Oh, uh, boy, we've had one snowstorm, an ice storm after another. <laughs> We're going to pick up on a commitment, actually, that I made to uh, somebody a number of months ago, 
And uh, we're going to do at least a two-part series on Titus Bransma. Oh, that will be um, very, very fitting for Lent. <laughs> it will. And I want to say something to one of our special listeners in uh, Beaumont, Texas. That person will know who they are. Uh, I've not asked their permission, so I won't share their name. But uh, this is in response to a request uh, uh, by a listener. And I've been uh, somewhat lax in getting through the necessary preparation. But we are there, and we're going to begin that next week. And uh, I'll also share with that person I've sent them a second a communication following my first letter. and In fact, that was a couple months ago. I hope that they received it uh, and look forward to hearing back from you. And we're at, thankful at for point. that suggestion because it's very powerful. It is. It will be a very powerful series, much like it has been to be taken through the life of Herman Cohen. And, of course, we thank the Lord for this blessing uh, to both uh, the Carmelite Order and to the Church. And now in uh, response to that blessing, And in uh, our prayer for him, we're going to close with this prayer. Yes, this is the prayer for his beatification. And and there is an opportunity to insert your own personal intention, so I'll do a slight pause at that point. And as we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Mary, Immaculate Virgin Mother, who at the Grotto of Lourdes restored to health Father Augustine Mary of the Blessed Sacrament, that he might serve you faithfully in your order of Carmel, obtain, we pray, from the Blessed Trinity, the grace of all those needs in our hearts and our other desires and prayers, through the intercession and merits of your devout servant, whose joy was to suffer for Jesus and to whom it was granted in answer to his heartfelt prayer to consecrate his life in its entirety to God's will, service, and glory. Mary, Mother of God, glorify, we beseech you, this your servant, who, through the redeeming power of Christ present in the Holy Eucharist, was brought to the knowledge of the truth. Make known, we pray, this apostle, who was fired with devotion to the blessed sacrament of your Son's love. May he bestow upon us, priest and laity alike, his burning zeal that the divine presence in the Eucharist be adored, the Mass celebrated with the reverence and sincerity, holy communion received frequently and with devotion. Grant that forthwith, throughout the world, and especially among your chosen people, Israel, there may be established the Eucharistic kingship of the Son of David, the living bread who came down from heaven in the womb of the most blessed Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again for taking time to be with us. As we enter Lent, our blessings and prayers will be with all of you, and we pray that you too will keep us in your prayers. And reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. God bless. Listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations.